Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. This week, we are going all the way back to 1962, one of the great British television series of the 1960s, The Saint. My husband and I had been planning our honeymoon was going to be somewhere exotic and dangerous, like the Amazon or Morocco or something like that. And then we found out we were expecting. So honeymoon got pushed to someplace uh, a little less uh, dangerous, a little less adventurous. So when we started planning a trip to France, thought, actually, this is going to be no fun if we go without my son. So it turned into a family vacation, but it was great. We had a lot of first experiences. Finn tried Roquefort for the first time, real Roquefort cheese from Roquefort, which I have to say is a completely different cheese from what you get in the United States. It's really, I mean, I didn't get to try very much of it because it is not pasteurized. It is not (laughs) safe for pregnant people. Okay. So since we do not get his opinions on movies anymore, what's his opinion on cheese? He is a huge fan of the smelly cheeses, as it turns out. I did not know this about my son, but he became obsessed with this particular brand of camembert that they had over there, that at every fromagerie, he wanted to find this type. And I think he must have eaten three or four small wheels of camembert by himself over the course of the week. So that was Finn's highlight. My husband, after seeing something listed on the menu several times that was spelled P-I-G-E-O-N. And we were like, this has got to be some sort of French idiom. Like it's it's not actually pigeon. It's it's got to be like a, a quail or Cornish hen or nope. something like no it's, it's pigeon. It's pigeon. It's <laughs> definitely pigeon. Yep. Um but when made pigeon. properly yeah pigeon. <laughs> um when made properly it's served basically raw and my husband says it tastes like steak. Um you can get it in the US it's you'll find on the menu as squab but it's better over there, apparently. It figures everything nasty tastes like chicken, but then you eat a pigeon and it tastes like steak. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I watched Succession along with everyone else in the world and was very satisfied with how they wrapped up the series. I, For those who haven't seen it, I won't go into any spoilers, but the show has a really great, Shakespearean kind of vibe. It reminded me a lot of the film The Lion in Winter with Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn and kind of the palace intrigue machinations kind of thing. And sort of even in a hypothetical sense, trying to figure out how they were going to wrap up this series, they outdid my expectations, which is hard to do. A lot of a lot of series that really make you feel attached to what's going on expectations are high, but I felt like they delivered. What have you been up to? As far as streaming goes, I finally finished Better Call Saul. Nice. For those who haven't been watching this series or hadn't watched it, you know, obviously, if you're one of the three people or whatever, it was the spinoff prequel 
sequel to Breaking Bad. It was a victim of the pandemic. It was down to its last season. And I have a rule about series that I really like. I hate waiting for a new season to drop. So I generally don't watch a series until it's done. That's what I did with Breaking Bad. And then I stream all of them in a row. So that's what I was doing with Better Call Saul. And then the pandemic happened and it went on hiatus for years. And it came back and it's an AMC show. So it was only on AMC for a little while, which I didn't have. So I was like, it's going to come to Netflix. It kept getting delayed and delayed. It finally came, the season six came to Netflix in March. Now I found out that it was going to be delayed before I had started season five. So I'd gotten through one through four. So I held off on five and six. And then from March till now, I've been busy with all kinds of other things. So I finally was like, okay, it's time. And I watched all of it. I liked it. Uh, I was a little unhappy with the ending, but not for the reason that most people or a lot of people were. My reasons were different. I'm not going to go into that unless we ever do a Better Call Saul show. Maybe I'll reveal it. But my reasons have less to do with uh, the common complaints you hear about the endings of these kinds of things. Um, I know that's cryptic, but it's a rabbit hole. If I start talking about it, we'll have just finished a, a podcast of Better Call Saul. You know? <laughs> <laughs> have you seen it? I watched the first season and then it just fell off my radar. So now I'm going to have to go back and watch it. Well, if you have a close relative or friend who happens to be a lawyer. Oh, you mean like, like my husband? <laughs> you need to see this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is a crime show, but it's also a lawyer show. Yeah, I highly recommend it. We've talked enough about that. Let's start getting into what we're talking about today. I first discovered this show on late night TV and reruns. Obviously, it was on before I was born. It reminded me a lot of this other British show that I loved called The Avengers. Yes. Which is sort of spy with some sci-fi and other elements thrown in. And I saw this one, and I still remember the first episode I saw Simon Templer, the main character, broke fourth wall and talked directly to the camera. And I thought that was amazing. <laughs> and I had never seen that done before. I was pretty much hooked on it when I could see it. Now, this thing aired late at night when they used to fill the airwaves with reruns at night on broadcast over the air television. This predates cable even. I loved it. I, to this day, have never seen all of the episodes nor do we have time to cover them all on this show. So we're not going to do a deep dive. We're just going to do one episode per season. But uh, let's talk a little bit about what things were like in 1962 before this was released. In January of 1962, Cuba and the Soviet Union sign a trade pact. That trade pact sets the stage for a lot of the events that happened that year. February 3rd, the United States puts an embargo on Cuba. February 10th of that year, the U.S. pilot Francis Gary Powers, who was the U-2 pilot that was shot down over the Soviet Union, is exchanged 
in a swap for Rudolf Abel, a Soviet spy that was in New York that was captured, and they make this trade in Berlin. And so this is the classic spy thing of like, you know, they meet at the Berlin Wall and cross. March 1st, the first Kmart opens. Now, I don't know when the last Kmart closed, but the last Kmart <laughs> around here, I remember closing only about a year ago. So you figure from 62 to 2022, it had a good 60-year run. April 14th, a tribunal in Cuba convicts 1,179 of the invaders of Cuba in the Bay of Pigs, U.S. invasion of Cuba. May 6th, the Polaris missile with a W-47 warhead, the only time a nuclear missile was ever test-fired with a warhead on it, detonates in the Palmyra Atoll, which is just south of Hawaii. June 3rd, <laughs> Air France, <laughs> Flight 007 crashes on takeoff at Orly Airport in Paris. 130 of 132 people on board are killed. Yikes. Two flight attendants survive. Most of the victims were cultural and civic leaders of Atlanta. This was also a bad year for Air France. I think that they had three crashes that year. July 2nd, the first Walmart store opens in Rogers, Arkansas. August 6th, Jamaica becomes independent. September 2nd, the Soviet Union agrees to send arms to Cuba. So a lot going on with the Soviet Union, Cuba, and the U.S. October 4th, 1962, the Saint debuts on British television. Now, if you remember from our James Bond episodes, October 5th, 1962, the next day, Dr. No, the first James Bond movie premieres. So this came out the day before the first James Bond film. And then I'll just wrap things up with the history part saying that on November 20th was the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the Soviet Union agreed to remove its missiles from Cuba after a tense 13-day standoff and President Kennedy ended a blockade that we had of the island. I think there was some exchange of food as part of this agreement. There we go. Cold War is probably the hottest it ever got this year. So we are talking major spy stuff going on. I confess I'd maybe only heard of the show in passing in reference to the Val Kilmer film, like knowing that it was based on a TV show that had Roger Moore in it, but I had never seen any of it. And I had a similar experience of the character is very striking. So I wanted to, to do some digging into where this character came from. Simon Templer came to life in a series of short adventure stories written by Leslie Charteris in the 1920s. Charteris was born in Singapore as Leslie Bower Yin. Um, his mother was British. His father was a Chinese physician. He was born in 1877. Thinking about the time period, this means that the author would have been a teenager at the height of the popularity of the Sherlock Holmes stories. So 
kind of where this character might have come from or the formula for these short quasi mysteries with a little bit of supernatural occasionally thrown in but a very charismatic lead hero character the marketing for the show calls him a modern day robin hood but i see a lot more ties to sherlock holmes charteris uh, and his family moved to england when he was a teenager he went to cambridge but only stayed for a year and left after his first novel got picked up and he decided to become a writer but not just a writer. He actually was kind of a jack-of-all-trades, multi-talented genius type. He continued to write these thriller stories while working at various jobs, including working as a barman in a country inn. He prospected for gold, dived for pearls. He worked at a tin mine and a rubber plantation and joined a carnival and was a bus driver. Just kind of like a little bit of everything. So this character he's created who seems hyper capable, it is maybe partially based on the kind of person he was in real life. Simon Templer, the character, debuted in Charteris's third novel, Meeting the Tiger, but really took center stage in the sequel to that book, Enter the Saint. After this, Templer became his main fixation and showed up in novels, novellas, and short stories. Charteris did move to the U.S. in 1932 and started working as a writer for Paramount Pictures, but he was unable to obtain permanent residency in the U.S. because of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yikes. <laughs> Although apparently there may have been an act of Congress that personally granted him and his daughter residency, which is, you know, kind of nuts. But the saint as a character and... The radio show starring Vincent Price became very popular in the U.S. The character, of course, was also popular in Britain. And throughout the 1940s, Charteris continued to write these saint stories while also writing radio dramas for Sherlock Holmes starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. And if you haven't listened to these, by the way, they are fantastic, the, the radio dramatizations of the Sherlock Holmes stories. The radio dramatizations of The Saint aren't bad, but I would definitely say I prefer the show and I prefer the book. I've actually read some of the Saint stories. Mm -hmm. I would call them more like short stories. They're not really long, but I just always remember hearing it on the radio. That modern day Robin Hood. Yeah. I've always thought that was a bad tagline. That's not who The Saint is, but better than the uh, Val Kilmer movie. We won't talk about that. <laughs> the character's popularity, though, really cemented with the eight-part film series made by RKO between 1938 and 1943, mostly starring George Sanders, who you'll all know as the voice of Sher Khan in the animated Disney film Jungle Book. That voice. Oh, my God. But <laughs> and, and now I kind of want to look that up just because I actually I really like him as an actor. And the character popped up now and again after this short film series, but really didn't make a comeback until 1962 with the TV series starring Roger Moore. These episodes were largely based on the short stories rather than the novels and the novellas. But some of the episodes were brand new tales that were then later republished as short stories. It was most popular in Britain and the U.S., but it aired in 60 other countries. And the only show that really rivaled it was The Avengers, which Eric referenced earlier. 
but the Avengers was shot on videotape in the beginning. It wasn't really the same kind of quality production. The Saint was shot entirely on film, which is pretty cool. It was shot at Associated British Elstree Studios in Hertfordshire, with very few scenes shot elsewhere. They had really elaborate sets and used some early blue screen technology and, you know, the projected backdrops rolling in the background for the car chases and things like that. But actually pretty good filming and pretty good effects for the time period. And I'm going to save my notes about Roger Moore for when we discuss future episodes, but needless to say, he really makes the character and makes the series. And we'll talk more about how he got involved in the project in a later episode. But in the meantime, I think we should just dive in. This opens, there's this um, writer and his wife who are living in the countryside. And there is a scene right near the beginning where they're out on the patio and he goes in to get something for her and goes upstairs to a balcony overlooking the patio and either intentionally or accidentally we're not sure knocks a planter off of it and injures her and uh, she becomes housebound Meanwhile, we have the introduction of Simon Templer, the saint who arrives in this little town, driving a sports car, all flashy, like clearly not trying to be unobtrusive or anything. And uh, he meets and talks with some of the locals. He is very interested in this writer. He has a friend in the bartender, which makes me wonder how often he comes to this place. The bartender wants to give him a Manhattan. I think it. there are multiple scenes in the bar, but I think it's the first one where he, he wants to give him a Manhattan. He's like, no, at this hour, just a pint. Warm, flat, nourishing, and very British. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I can't deliver that line the way Roger Moore does. But clearly, we have a character here that drives sports cars, drinks cocktails usually, and is very British. I think you can go where you can figure out where I'm going with this. Yeah, although I I will just jump in. I can't remember at what point the aside to the audience happens, whether it's the very first thing he says or whether we get a little bit of this banter first. But one thing I think that makes him different from James Bond is these asides to the audience. And I'm curious what you think it functionally is, because it doesn't happen at any other point in the episode. Just in like the first few minutes, you get this break in the fourth wall and I think it is because it makes the character a little less of an aloof and distant asshole you're in on it as the audience like some of his coolness gets to rub off on you from the start of the show because he treats you like a friend like a confidant and I thought that was an interesting move but I wanted to hear what you think it's for okay you'll see this when we watch more of them and you've probably already seen this, it always happens before the first commercial break. So it's at the start. It's in the intro, and then he breaks fourth wall, and it's that one time he is narrating his own story. I've always took it as his video memoirs. Like, this has hmm. happened in the past, and he's, like, telling you about it. That's, that's my take on it, and I do think there's an aspect of humanizing him and stuff like that. But there is this wink and a nod that... Roger Moore 
will bring, as we'll see later, to to the Bond franchise. There is a slight, it isn't as blatant as Breaking Fourth Wall, but there is a kind of self-awareness that his Bond has that, like Connery's Bond, for example, doesn't. Like Connery's plays it straight, whereas Roger Moore, he, you almost get this feeling that his Bond knows there's an audience. <laughs> knows there's an audience, right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that more when we get to Bond. I don't want to sidetrack things too much, but keep in mind, this is before Bond came out in film form. The only Bond that had happened before this was... Jimmy Bond. <laughs> yeah. Now, imagine that, but replace Barry Nelson with Roger Moore. Back to the story, you know, there is a housekeeper that drops in to pick up a delivery from one of the shops. Yes, Mrs. Jafferty. Mrs. Jafferty, and uh, he meets her. He also meets a very beautiful, what, what we come to find out is an undercover insurance claim investigator, played by Shirley Eaton. Uh, what I love is that they acknowledge within the story, like he's like, you're a little too attractive to be an insurance investigator. And she's like, no, really? Like they look for people like this. Like, you know, it <laughs> gives me a leg up in the job. And I, I just thought it was a very funny little interplay. <laughs> well, he's also really posh for some like rural British community, right? You know, yeah. he himself is also like, they're both like, <laughs> way too good looking to be like in this town of like you know now Shirley Eaton you know who she is right refresh my memory okay she oh my god Goldfinger <laughs> she is the most famous Bond girl death in the history of the Bond franchise she is the woman painted gold in Goldfinger so just saying it's almost like fate is happening here and trying to give hints toward the future. Adrienne is her name. When Simon Templer meets Adrienne at the bar in that scene where she's like, oh no, they look for someone, you know, that yeah. scene is one, again, one of the most 007 TV moments I've ever seen in a non 007 thing. Yeah. The strange bedfellows dynamic definitely reminded me of Bond with other female agents from other countries. Like that interplay between them of like they have their own separate missions and now they're working together and they both know that the other one's on a mission before they find out what that mission is they can tell yes. like they spot them <laughs> and they're like you know as we go on this thing slowly spins out into almost a hitchcockian thriller in fact it reminded me a lot of some of the episodes of alfred hitchcock presents for a while we're trying to figure out exactly what's going on we learn from Shirley Eaton's character, that this playwright who they're investigating has had two previous wives die under mysterious circumstances and now has a large <laughs> insurance policy on the current one. So as things go on, it jumps back and forth between Simon Templer's story and the talented husband, which I don't know if maybe that is a reference to the talented Mr. Ripley, which was already a famous um, thriller. Mm. Anyway, his story is he's taking care of his wife, but you get the feeling they start dropping it and it becomes more and more obvious as things go on. It doesn't seem like he really loves her as much as we think. 
And then he purchases rat poison. Now we know something's up. I think we kind of knew something was up when the planter fell on her head, personally. Like, that was... It was not a convincing accident, like the way the way it was filmed, the way it, the way it happened. I wasn't sure at that point in the in the story. I wasn't sure. I thought it could go another way that like something else was up. Perhaps somebody else had loosened that planter or whatever mm. to try to frame him. You know, I wasn't sure. But we're not going to reveal the ending because this is a good mystery and everybody should check it out if you have any interest in these kind of shows. But Basically, he has a very good alibi. He leaves town on business. Can, can we at least talk about what the business is, though? Yeah, go ahead. I love how this episode makes fun of theater people. Like, that he's he's a struggling playwright. Or, like, someone who maybe had one good play and never had another good play again, but keeps thinking of himself as an accomplished playwright. So he's going in to you know talk about one of his recent plays but with a producer yeah with a producer but but what i i loved about this was there's clearly like a little bit of love going into the creation of this husband character but a lot of lampooning of the vanity and selfishness of some kinds of theater people and a little bit of mustache twirling <laughs> those type of people as well <laughs> yeah so eventually there is a reveal in this and i'm not going to go into that i saw the reveal coming i don't know if you did too yeah not from the beginning but a f- you know several minutes before the reveal happened so i think they did a pretty good job with that because i got probably halfway through the episode before i yeah realized what the reveal was going to be so that was well done that's all i'll say about that but One thing that I can say without it being too big a spoiler is on his business trip that's supposed to be his alibi, he runs into his wife's doctor. And I was never clear on, so I'm asking you, how did he know that uh, his doctor would be in that same train car, you know, enter the same train car that he was already in? Or was it a coincidence? I think it was a coincidence. I, I think that's a hell of a coincidence, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think he needed to find a witness for his alibi, but the fact that it was the doctor was coincidence. I can buy that, I guess. I mean, it's small town. There can't be that many people coming to and from it, but yeah, I, I think, you know, if it hadn't been the doctor would have been someone else, but for the sake of the narrative and keeping the number of characters that we as the audience have to keep track of it's more convenient for it to be the doctor than like another neighbor that we haven't met yet this being your first viewing of the saint what did you think just having seen this episode i mean i really enjoyed it like as you said it plays plays out like a hitchcock presents kind of thing but i i also i'm i i'm going to come back to this Sherlock Holmes comparison again and again because I feel like there is definitely like James Bond overtones James Bond precursor stuff going on but I feel like some of it is also coming from this other tradition of like Simon Templar isn't isn't working for anybody he's not attached to anything he's he's a rogue independent agent 
more in the way that Sherlock Holmes is compared to Bond, where like part of the fun of Bond is the way he works within and against uh, M and Moneypenny and like the whole bureaucracy that he's part of. But here, Simon Templer is, you know, a modern day Robin Hood. He's like doing good for its own sake out on his own, much in the way that Holmes does. But it's fun seeing a character like this where, like, as clever as Holmes, as able to follow a scent of a mystery as Holmes, but someone who also enjoys people's company and doesn't hate women. It's awesome. <laughs> it's it's really great seeing that mix of traits. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. The pacing is good. Performances are all really solid. The filmmaking was interesting. I couldn't believe I hadn't that I mean, this is the sort of thing where I expected my father to have shown me all of these episodes at some point in my teenagehood because he's such a huge James Bond fan. So now the first thing I'm going to do after this podcast is call my dad and be like, dude, this is on Amazon Prime. Like, just go go watch all of this. You're going to love it. By the way, since we mentioned that, not to plug just one streaming service, it's available on a lot of streaming services out there for free right now. So you can find it on Tubi. You can find it on Freebie. You can find it on Roku. It's a lot of places right now, so uh, there's no excuse not to check it out. All right, so let's talk about the next episode we watched from season two, episode 19. So this is a long way into the series now. They've done shot a lot of episodes. This one was called Luella. He is at, an, at the airport meeting an old drinking buddy and his old drinking buddy's wife. And at first, uh, he's like really excited to see him, ignoring his wife that's standing right there and... Eventually, they talk about how she's going to be way, but she charges Simon with keeping him in line. But he's having none of that. He wants to go gamble and drink and cavort uh, with the ladies and all of that. That's kind of the setup for this episode. Did you recognize this guy, the actor? No, I didn't. The actor is David Hedison. He played Felix Leiter in two Bond movies, Live and Let Die and License to Kill. No way. Yep. And for those who don't know Felix Leiter, I think we did talk about Felix Leiter in Dr. No, it was Jack Lord. Yeah. But Felix Leiter is James Bond's old friend, buddy, drinking buddy. They go out to, uh, they literally go out to a bar in Jamaica or whatever in, uh, in Dr. No. Despite the fact that the actor clearly, you know, demonstrates that he has what it takes to to carry, you know, a good supporting role, this character is not anything like Felix Leiter. Like Felix Leiter is very much feels like James Bond's American counterpart in a lot of ways. This character is not the American counterpart to Simon Templer at all. This character is is like a parody of the dumb idiotic american <laughs> true but i had to point it out nonetheless yes ab- absolutely i just don't want our audience to be confused like this character from the beginning is like really awkward and impatient and whiny and <laughs> just like you i mean you can see why he would also be fun to go drinking with like no question about that. You can see why they're friends, but Simon Templar definitely comes off as being in a in leagues above this dude. Right. Well, 
anytime Templar is supposed to be the voice of restraint is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know that you've gone uh, too far. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to point it out because it was last episode we watched, we had one of the most famous Bond girls. And here we have yes. one of the most famous non-Bond guys from the Bond films. In the course of his drinking and gambling and stuff like that, he ends up photographed in a compromising position with a woman and is blackmailed for it. Actually, it starts as a not straight up blackmail scam, but a different kind of scam and then turn evolves. And Templar basically has to solve this problem. Yeah. Can I just make like a totally random aside? Yeah. So this should have come up in our, like, what have you been streaming recently? And in the, like, thoughts from a 14-year-old boy. But we just watched Pulp Fiction with Finn for the first time a couple nights ago. Wow. And just, like, it was interesting having that in my head in terms of, like, famous sequences where, like, guys are trying to clean something up before a wife finds out about the trouble you've gotten into. Like Yeah, the wolf. The wolf. Harvey, Harvey Keitel's character, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it was anyway, it was just funny, like, seeing this as a recurring theme that that happens in film of like, men trying to help each other out so that the wife doesn't like find out and that the the sense of the ticking clock in the yeah. background is really great. And I, I thought they did that really well in in this episode, where a lot of the suspense just comes from like, is he is he going to get back up to the hotel room in time before the wife shows up? And unlike the wolf in Pulp Fiction, the way that Templar decides to get him out of this is run a scam on the scammers. Yeah. So he pretends to be a mark. First of all, he blasts him for being a <laughs> Boston scrod. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is a kind of fish. I don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, and then then he goes uh, undercover like pretending to be an American tourist, rich, dumb guy. It shows a little bit of a range here because here we have Roger Moore playing Simon Templar, playing a, another character. A lot of people like to um, to diss Roger Moore on his acting. I don't know. I, I think that, that you I know... Mean I will say that his American accent was not one of the better American accents I've heard okay. done by a British actor, but the other parts of the Americanness I thought he did very well. Like, you know, playing sort of like a toned down version of the hyperbolized stereotype that Hedison is playing. It's the 1960s. He did a, a pretty good job, you know, doing it is not perfect. As far as accents go, he's no Gary Oldman. Everyone! <laughs> I don't know why it's giving you a thumbs up. But go okay. Away. <laughs> he's no Gary Oldman. Yes, I'll no Gary him. Oldman. <laughs> All roads lead. <laughs> I will say that this is tonally very different from the first one, which was a really like tense thriller. Yes, there's the ticking clock, but this one is a lot more slapstick like there's a there's a fight in a restaurant that's yes. straight up slapstick and it's really good slapstick too it's like worthy of the three stooges you know yeah well and i i love the whole sequence that comes before that where you get to see 
Roger Moore playing the designated driver character, basically. Like, you know, his friend, you know, is drinking, gambling, like going nuts. And Roger Moore, like, quietly pours his glass of champagne on the floor and is, like, making sure his friend's wallet doesn't get stolen. And then, like, trying to get him out of the restaurant before the he really gets involved in the fight. And it's fun seeing that. And then also getting a sense of Simon Templer is patient and refined in a way that this other character isn't and you get the sense that going out and boozing and really letting his hair down is not something that interests him anymore it might have been a younger templar who wanted to do that but the current templar we're seeing like james bond is never in a hurry to do anything he knows that the booze and the money and the women will all come to him in due course (laughs) (laughs) I think it's worth pointing out a couple of other Bond references here, because one is she orders a drink Mm. and everybody thinks of Bond's drink as a dry martini, shaken, not stirred and all that. But he orders it differently in different movies. And the way she orders it in this, she asks for a very dry, very cold martini. That's a Bond drink right there. Yeah. So... I uh, thought I'd mention that. But then Miss Hill, <laughs> at the very end of this, the woman who runs the hotel. Oh, gosh, I love this scene. He whispered something in her ear earlier in this episode, and she mentions his friends in the FBI and looks over at David Hedison, Felix Leiter, CIA guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead and tell us, you know, we're giving away the ending here, but it's so worth it. Yeah, well, you don't know what he's whispered to her until at the end she and she says, but you really are James Bond, right? <laughs> and he has to break her heart and say no. But interestingly, at this point in the series, Roger Moore had been offered the role of James Bond several times, and he was unable to to take it up because he was busy filming The Saint. So Well, there are different reports on that. Things conflict. So like Roger Moore himself denies that uh, in his autobiography. So we, we we will have to try to untangle that at some point. We'll get into that at a later episode then. Interestingly, the actress that plays Miss Hill, Jean St. Clair, will appear in a later episode of this series where she plays a fortune teller. Mm. So a lot of people are like, hey, it's the same character. She's a fortune teller. She says, you are Bond, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Fan theories abound. (laughs) It's a ton of fun. Some of the fun comes from seeing a good bit of 1960s London, getting to see the airport, getting to see the changing the guard colors ceremony out in front of Buckingham Palace. And it's cool seeing a lot of this. I, I mean, not not very much of it was shot on location, but some some of these scenes are, and that adds to the fun in addition to the slapstick and the seductions and all the salacious stuff. Yeah, yeah. Are you excited to watch more um, of The Saint? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to be a good girl and I'm going to watch the episodes that we are covering on this podcast first, but I am looking forward to going back this... and watching all the rest. Yeah. Of them. Yeah. Making this my, my new, like, what am I doing when I'm on the treadmill or folding laundry? Like it's, it's perfect. Like the episodes are just the right length for like quick little bite-sized mysteries and I have to say Roger Moore is really growing on me. He he was not my favorite Bond. I'm I'm just gonna say that outright. But now now I see it. Like now I, I like I understand why they cast him because he is pretty fucking charming. <laughs> okay, we'll talk more about that. We have a long way to go before we get there. So I want to remind everybody to just tell one person about this podcast. If everybody tells one person, then hopefully we will grow. I said in the past, we don't do um, ads. We don't ask for money. We don't have a Patreon or anything like that. We don't run ads on other podcasts, although maybe we should. We rely solely on word of mouth. So if you can let somebody else know about this, you know, every so often someone will ask me, do you know a good podcast I can listen to? If you want to talk to us, you are free to email us at gc8podcast, that's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. We release every date with an eight, so the eighth, the 18th, and the 28th of each month. And until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. Signing off. What was the music playing? Just out of curiosity. It was um, no doubt.